Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I speak with Kevin Elliker, who's currently a counsel at Hunton Andrews Kurth in Richmond, Virginia, where his practice focuses on appeals, litigation, and investigations. Prior to rejoining the firm in October 2022, Kevin spent three years in government service, first as an assistant United States attorney in Richmond, and most recently as an investigative counsel for the Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. Kevin started his law career as a law clerk to Judge King of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit and Judge Gibney on the Eastern District of Virginia. Prior to law school at William & Mary, go Tribe, uh, where he graduated number one in his class. Kevin was a high school history and government teacher for two years before uh, he decided to take the plunge. He's a graduate of James Madison University. Go Dukes. Uh, so great to have you on the podcast, Kevin. Thanks for being here. Jonah, I'm thrilled to be here. I've been listening to the podcast for a really long time, so it's a little surreal to be talking to you. Yeah, well, it's fantastic. And I love when listeners get to be guests. That's kind of the fun of this little internet project. But look, I always like to start the interviews by talking a little bit about the choice to go to law school and become a lawyer. And one of the things that was really interesting about your biography when I was sort of doing some research on you is that you had sort of already picked a career before you decided to go to law school, and that was yeah. to be uh, to be a teacher. And so I guess I'm curious sort of how law school came about and what led to that pivot. Yeah, so I always thought I wanted to be a high school history teacher when I uh, was in high school and everybody else was starting to talk about what they wanted to study in college. For me, it was like, well, history is always going to be the thing. It's quite, kind of ironic because I actually went to a, a math and science high school and history was my favorite subject. But hmm. I uh, got to JMU and I just had it in my mind that I wanted to be a high school history teacher. Like that would be the coolest thing to get to always talk about American history and to interact with students and it would be fun and energetic, kind of like, I guess it was maybe this sort of dead poet society kind of aspiration of some kind. Sure. And so I kind of did that and didn't look back, right? So at at JMU, you can do a five-year program where you get your undergraduate degree in four years. And then in the extra year, you get a master's degree and do student teaching and certification to become a teacher in Virginia. And it really wasn't until sort of the end of that five-year process that I was actually inside a classroom Hmm. and doing the teacher thing. And I started to have some kind of doubt, like, wait a second, this is a little bit different than I thought it was going to feel like. And then once I got into the profession full-time, I sort of realized that the thing I loved was studying history and thinking about what was important about it and what I wanted to talk to other people about within the subject. Sure. But the delivery mechanism for me was just off. I'm sure you might have teachers or I know I remember teachers who were like really cool, creative thinkers. They came up with interesting ways to present information. And that just wasn't me. Hmm. I wanted to be good at that, but I just didn't feel particularly fulfilled by it. So I started thinking about how could I go do something where I could really kind of get engrossed in a subject area with other people who are into the subject and maybe be on my feet a little bit and interact with adults instead of teenagers all the time. Right. Which is both fun, but also a challenge. Yeah. And so law school kind of like it appeared in front of me as as a logical next step. 
What's really interesting about that story, to me at least, is I think there are a lot of people who become lawyers in the same sort of fashion that you became a teacher. Like they had some interaction with a lawyer, whether it was on television or in their real life, and they think, huh, that looks pretty cool. I think I'm going to do that. Pre-law, law school, bar, then they actually get to practicing and they look back and they're like, actually, this doesn't fit my skill set or doesn't fit my interests or isn't exactly what I thought. And some of them end up becoming teachers, ironically enough. What's cool about your story, right, is it's the opposite. Like you chose law after you had already sort of had, I don't want to call it a false start, but right. a different path. And I think that's really thought provoking to people who are maybe listening to this and thinking, maybe I'm in the not in the right spot. Like you can pivot and you can be successful. Well, you know, it's funny about that, Jonah, is that when you're in law school and you're going to internship interviews or summer associate interviews, on my resume, it says, it's clear, like always came up, why don't, you know, what happened? Why did you leave teaching? Right. And I would tell the story and then they would ask, okay, so what do you want to do? And I kind of knew enough to say, well, I'm not totally sure because as we've already discussed, I already have a, mas- <laughs> I have a master's degree in something I don't want to do anymore. So that was a way to kind of like joke about it. But it was, you know, it was an eye-opening experience for me about the necessity of picking sort of like taking a few steps down the path, but always keeping right. your eyes up and making sure that what you're doing is really what makes you happy. Because again, like I just, I'm glad I did the teaching thing. It was a great experience. And I think I actually have pulled in some lessons from what it was like to be a teacher for the couple of years I did it into my practice. But but you're right. I'm glad that it worked that way and not the other way around. Sure. Yeah. It's really interesting. I also, I have a, I got a master's degree before I went to law school. And the first question is always in every interview, like, why did you do that? The benefit is I know that's the first question and I have what I think turned out to be a decent answer for why. And frankly, what in the moment seems like odd to other people, as you said, actually can provide transferable skills. So to the extent this is your pivot, I say, go for it. Other questions I had, and I'm asking this because I've had other students who have done teaching, whether it's full-time, Teach for America, something before law school, is I find they tend to be pretty good law students by and large. And I guess I'm curious if your teaching experience helped when you then went back to school to sort of learn law. I think it had to have. I mean, on one level, it was it was helpful to just generally have been a working professional before law school, right? I mean, and I think that that's a thread that is fairly common that a lot of folks who, for lack of a better way of putting it, like I had already been a grown up, right? Like I had paid rent, I had been responsible for my own grocery shopping and doing my own laundry and, you know, I didn't have a meal plan, that kind of stuff. And so just kind of like treating law school more like a job as the cliche goes, that was a little bit easier for me. But I think it also, part of being a teacher you have to spend a lot of time alone. Hmm. You don't really think about that, right? When you are, you think of your teachers, you think about them in the classroom, interacting with a few dozen students. But when they're not in the classroom, they're doing a lot of stuff by themselves, like reviewing the material, figuring out what's important, figuring out how they want to teach it, grading papers. And so I think that sort of solitary experience transferred over because I thought, wait, this is all I have to do now. Like I remember, I remember telling people that people were asking me how it was when I started law school. I said, this is great. All I have to do is read all day. (laughs) That's all. Go to class and read. Right. And so it helped me kind of stay on top of it that way. And then, and I think just the discipline of being responsible for yourself, knowing that if you didn't do the reading, nobody else was going to step in and make it easier for you. Right. I guess compared to law school, when a student asks you a question in your, you know, U S history class, you can't say pass. Right. (laughs) Right. You have to 
be able to come up with something to explain with them. So it's like you're on call every single day, except there's 25 professors in the classroom and there's going to be like three more in the next few hours over the course of the day. Right. I love that. Yeah. I think, you know, anyone who's had that experience of standing up in front of a classroom recognizes that it's more than just that moment when you stand up in the classroom, it's everything that comes before. And frankly, that's not that different in than many law practices where what looks like on paper, like this is just the five page brief you filed. That's potentially hundreds of hours of work and thinking that gets you down to that five pages. And so you go to law school, you're obviously successful at William & Mary, and you decide to go clerk. Talk to me a little bit about how that all came about. And you know, one of the things I'm particularly interested in in terms of clerkships is there is a path sort of from sort of the top 5, 10, 15 law schools to clerkships. There are other paths as well, and, and you found some great clerkships. How did that all come about? Yeah, so... I think I don't have a, a terribly original story about why I decided to clerk. It was more, I was a 1L and I learned that it was a thing and I thought this sounds like it would be fun. Sure. And I also knew that I wanted to, I was pursuing sort of a path towards litigation. So I knew about the connection between being a law clerk for a judge and becoming a litigator. And so I had professors who encouraged me to do that. I'll say that my hopes were pretty high at the very beginning because I decided I wanted to do, I would love to be able to do appellate work, right? Because mm -hmm. I love, you know, sort of the government teacher history. I was thinking con law. I was thinking all of those great principles and big dreams, right? And so I was like, well, it would be amazing if I did really well, if I could get an appellate clerkship, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was where my focus was. And was really lucky at one point to get an externship with a federal magistrate judge in Richmond, Judge Novak. And Judge Novak was a great mentor to me during that. It was a, just for a semester. He basically said, I know you don't know what a magistrate judge does. I'm going to show you why it's great. And because he knew I kind of had these like lofty goals. And, and he basically kind of anchored me back in reality, which is like, this is where stuff is really happening, right? Mm. And he said, come as many days as a week as you like, but you can come and watch. You'll work on some opinions for me. You'll get to watch settlement conferences, which is something the magistrate judges do in that court. And so it was great. And he was absolutely right. It was incredible. And I was in his chambers when just upstairs, Judge Gibney posted a vacancy for a clerkship. And Judge hmm. Novak said to me, I know that you have this great, because I would talk to him. He said, I know you want to do this appellate thing. You're going to have a chance to do that you would be a fool if you didn't apply to Judge Gibney because hmm. I'm telling you, you would love him. And he was absolutely right. It was some of the best advice I got when I was in law school because I applied, I interviewed with Judge Gibney. He has very deep connection to William & Mary. He went there undergrad and so loves people from William & Mary. And we just hit it off. I love that. He's just this great, his background is as a sort of Virginia trial lawyer. He's not a highfalutin kind of guy. He comes from Coatesville, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia. He's, he's just a really gregarious guy, very laid back. And working for him was a dream. And I got really close with him. He actually ended up performing my wedding when I married my wife. I love that. Who was uh, my girlfriend in law school. So that was great. But again, so then I, I basically do that, right? And sure. when you're a law student, you kind of have this view of like, okay, I want to get good grades. I want to right on the law review. Okay, next I want to do OCI. Next I want a clerkship, right? So there's always this next, next, next thing. So, you know, I was a summer associate in DC. I had gotten this district court clerkship. I was talking to everybody I could about appellate stuff and it just wasn't coming through. Mm -hmm. And I thought, 
okay, that's fine. There are worse things in the world to have to be doing well in law school and clerk for a district court judge and then accept an offer to go to this DC law firm, which is a wonderful place with lots of really talented lawyers. And uh, I almost, I kind of, I was like, I was still applying, but I just was starting to give up the ghost a little bit on it. Sure. And then a professor of mine who knew I was really interested in clerking, he said, you know, the judge who I clerked for, Judge King, he probably would take a look at your application if I sent it. But it's in West Virginia, and you'd have to move to West Virginia for a year to go do this. And I thought, sure, why not? Like, what? what's I the harm? I love that. I, I love the excitement of like, sure, why not? Like, I think some people might say, why? And you said, right. why not? And I love that. Well, I mean, because it's like, look, there's only 15 judges on the Fourth Circuit, and right. two of them sit in West Virginia, right? So who am I going to turn? I'm not going to turn. I wasn't. It was not about West Virginia specifically. It was about the idea of having to go to live in a place that was very remote from what I had personally experienced, like doing the, sure. I grew up in Virginia, Richmond, which is where I was clerking, was familiar to me. I, was, I thought I was going to DC at the time, but I said, yeah. And sure enough, right? Like this Adam Gershowitz was this law professor, emails the career clerk, the application mm -hmm. coincidentally happened to be when they were looking to fill a vacancy. Wow. Then when Judge King actually came to Richmond for a sitting, when the Fourth Circuit was hearing argument, he had me come down the hill from the district court to come sit with him. And I basically like hung out with him for a day. Wow. And then, and then he hired me, right? Like, and it was just, and then before I knew it, I was, a year had passed with Judge Gibney and I was packing my bags to move to Charleston. I love that. I love that story for so many reasons. And I really... Just the openness and how some things, I think it looks, I say this a lot, but I can't not say it again when I hear your story. Like you read people's LinkedIn profiles or you talk to them at cocktail parties and everything seems so like perfectly organized and preordained. And there is so little about the first 15 minutes of our conversation that sounds preordained. It was just a series of, of opportunities and a willingness to kind of take those opportunities and keep trying. And if something doesn't work, that's fine too. Right. I mean, look, it doesn't, it looks like a straight line on paper, right? And I'm sure I don't want to be immodest about it, right? If I were a law student looking at my career trajectory, I would have assumed, obviously, do well in law school, clerkship one, clerkship two, big law, prosecutor, like all of that stuff looked like none of it was ping ponging back and forth. It was mm -hmm. total random chance, right? I did actually have some interviews. I had another interview with a district court clerkship didn't work out before the thing right. happened with Judge Gibney. I had an inter I had other interviews with judges for federal appeals court clerkships and didn't work out, right? So nothing was sort of, it wasn't obvious at the time that it was all going to come together the way that it did. Right. And it's not random in the sense, you know, sometimes I think you think of ping pong ball as kind of random. It's not random. Like you worked hard, you got good right. grades, you got that externship and that externship led to the clerkship and the clerkship led to the second clerkship. It's this like fallacy of the overnight success, right? It's like you work for 10 years of your life and then, oh, you have an overnight random success. You're putting yourself in the right position. Before we get to your time in private practice after clerking, I have to ask, like, do you have a favorite story from your time as a law clerk? Oh, gosh. I mean, I guess when I think about my clerkships, I think about the difference between what it was like to clerk on the district court for Judge Gibney and for Judge King on the Fourth Circuit, right? Obviously, yeah, say more the, about that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so I know that you were lucky and got mm -hmm. to do one of each two, right? So sure. they're different 
just experiences day to day. The way that I explain it in shorthand is that my district court clerkship was more fun, but my appellate court clerkship was more interesting, right? Hmm. So every day was kind of a new adventure on the district court. You never knew what emergency filing would come in or what the lawyers would be like in court that day. And there was just a lot of stuff going on. The appellate clerkship was much more monastic, right? Like I remember after I came back to Richmond for court week, they call it for the fourth circuit where they have argument. I was talking to Judge Gibney and he wants to know, how's it going? What are you working on? And I said, well, I've been working really hard to get together, get ready for court week. I had four cases and he like, and he <laughs> laughed at me, right? He was like, you have, you worked on four cases for the past two months, which is what you do, right? Right. But also the, the personalities of the judges were really different. It gave me exposure to kind of different work styles. Judge Gibney's, they're both extremely friendly, gregarious judges. Judge Gibney was a little more hands-off through the process. And it was really kind of like, if you came to talk to him for help, he would give it to you. But the expectation was, you're going to do this your level best all the way through the first time. And then we'll workshop what comes after that. Mm -hmm. With Judge King, because by the time we're working on an opinion, we know kind of what, if this is a dissent or if he's writing for a unanimous court or whatever the disposition is, his was like, the number of edits just over and over yeah. and over again. I mean, that was the thing that when I think about clerking for Judge King, I think about just the sheer will it took to just keep going back over the draft, right? There mm -hmm. were days when we would turn like three drafts in a single day and wow. of some long opinion, it was tough as a recent law grad who kind of, you think you know what you're doing and then you get back and every draft is just completely torn up. But we knew he was the one with the commission and we were trying to make it work for him. But right. it was so gratifying when he's such a great storyteller and has a, a really sort of sunny disposition when he's in a good mood and working on something. And you knew you're on the right track. And he's like, I think we got him on the run. Like he would say something. <laughs> he would say that. Like, and that was what my co-clerks and I were like, yes, we're, we're we getting close. We're getting close. Yeah. yeah, I love that. And, you know, one of the things I had... You know, I worked for two different judges who had different temperaments and different approaches to the writing process and different tasks. I mean, frankly, the district court doesn't have the time or the energy to do that. They need to get decisions out. And I learned like a whole lifetime worth of litigation kind of in one year because you could see so many cases at different stages. On the Court of Appeals, you learn what real deep writing is all about. Right. And you may never get to write that deeply and that carefully ever again, even in private practice when people are paying you to do it. And so it's such a great opportunity. And it sounds like you had two fantastic experiences. Yeah, they were they were great. I wouldn't trade them for anything. Yeah. So, you know, not to sort of like push your biography forward, but you've done so many interesting things in such a short career that I really want to be able to cover them all. So you finish clerking. And you decide to stay in Richmond and not go back to D.C., I think, if that's right, yep. uh, or go back to Richmond and, and not go to D.C. Talk to me about that decision and sort of what kind of work you were doing right after your clerkship. Yeah. So, I mean, D.C. was where I was certain I was going to go when I was in law school. I had I was focused on, the, again, it was sort of an extension of this high school government teacher thing. Like, D.C. was sort of obvious to me as the location to get to. Mm -hmm. And I had summer jobs at the Justice Department, and then um, I was actually summer associate at Gibson Dunn in D.C., had accepted an offer to go back there. We get to Richmond for my clerkship with Judge Gibney, and within a few months, Lindsay turns to me and she says, this may not be exactly how it was, this is kind of how I remember it. Sure. She said, you can go to D.C. if you want, 
but I think I'm going to stay here. <laughs> and it was because Richmond is such a, it's like this amazing, it's hidden in plain sight, I think. It's a wonderful, very livable city. It's a big little city, right? Like it has, it's the state capital. The Fourth Circuit is here. There's a huge legal market. There's some big companies that are headquartered here, but it's not that difficult to get around. The cost of living is pretty low. It has a really low cost of living and the restaurants are great. And, you know, I was at the stage in my life because I had had this career before. I was starting to think personally down the line, you know, Lindsay and I were, were getting married. We got married in Richmond and we're thinking about starting a family not too, in the not too distant future and just thought, I don't want to be in DC when I'm raising mm. a family forever. So if I don't really want to be there forever, why wouldn't I just stay here? And that was what made us stay in Richmond. So then it came to <laughs> trying to find coming out of the clerkship with Judge King, basically starting over again to look for a place in Richmond and Hunton, it was called Hunton and Williams at the time. It was just like sort of love at first sight when I went and interviewed with the partners there for the opening they had. They were all really warm and friendly. And in particular, there was a partner who basically, I think he knew that I wasn't really sure what to do about law firms in Richmond. He said, look, whatever you want to do, if it's not what our group does, we'll help you figure it out. Like we'll help hmm. you find your particular interest. Wow. And it didn't hurt that this partner had clerked on the district court in Richmond, had clerked on the fourth circuit, and his wife was a lawyer who worked at Hunt and Williams, which at the time, my wife, Lindsay, before I, lo and behold, before I got there, had gotten a job working as, she's a healthcare lawyer, so she was working at Hunton too. Oh, so wow. it was just like this crazy, again, like the coincidence is all kind of Conversion. Sure. Yeah. So Hunton was, and it was a great place to work for three years. Really friendly people. I did a very wide variety of commercial litigation. I was there when they started their issues and appeals practice. So I was kind of in on the ground floor getting to mm -hmm. help do that like associate support work for that, which was really fun. Yeah. That's a, another piece that I think people forget. You know, I get students in my office every single year saying, I have an offer from this law firm or that law firm. And I look at them and I basically say, look, you might be in the same city doing roughly the same work for this roughly the same clients for roughly the same pay with a different sort of old white man's name on the building. Like functionally, like how do you choose right between law firms in that moment? Right. And it's that idea of, is the firm going to try to make me the best lawyer I can be? If you can get that feeling early on, I think that's a huge game changer to a junior lawyer's career because there are some firms that that's not the model. Right. And that's not the model for good reason. They may really want people to stay because they train them and they make them partner and everything else. Other firms see this as an opportunity. And it's like, if you're not there forever, that doesn't, it's not necessarily the end of the world. We're going to see how it works out and see how it goes. And caring about junior lawyers is something that I hope more law firms are frankly doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think going through interview process, if you're lucky enough to be able to interview with multiple firms or when you go to interview with a judge and you're trying to figure out, are they going to like me? Do I like them? It's really kind of like a blind date, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're going in and you're just trying to see like, what are the vibes here? Is this a good fit? Because in our line of work, by the time you're brought in for the interview, they've probably decided that you're objectively qualified. Absolutely. So now it's the point of just saying like, okay, I think I've heard you talk to it about the, uh, like, is it Toledo? Am I making that? Yeah, right. Yeah, the right, Toledo like, test. Yeah. Right. It's the, I call it the airport test, right? Like if I was stuck in an airport with this person, would I be okay with it? Or would I be like excusing myself to go to the bathroom all the time? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's, it's all personality fit. And part of it for me, like one thing that I have just come to accept, I don't think this makes me too much of a needy person. 
but I just thrive when I get to be friends with the people I work with. Right. Hmm. Like it doesn't mean that I'm going in expecting people to hang out with me every day, but like if I can get to know the people I work with on sort of a friend level, know their families, know what they're doing, joke around with them. And they know about me in that way. I just, I feel a lot more comfortable and supported in those environments. And yeah, it was very much kind of like that feel when I went in for the interview for hunting. I wasn't expecting to go down this path about like, how do you choose where you end up practicing law? But I think that's really another good mental model is like asking yourself, what do I want the place to feel like on a day-to-day basis? Because some people, the last thing they want is to like talk about their families and what they did over the weekend and affirm that sort of like closed door is a good fit for them. And that doesn't sound like it's a good fit for you. And like knowing yourself enough to know that and then to be able to sort of talk to people and get sort of soft ways to figure that out sounds like a really powerful approach. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And just to be clear on the Toledo test, because not everybody listens to every episode, you know, that was something that a partner once told me of like, again, you're qualified when you walk into the office. The question is, is this the kind of person who I could go to trial with in Toledo? And I always have to preface that by saying, I am not from Toledo. If you are from Toledo and you're listening to this, this is not meant to be derogatory. It's just not where I'm from. That's why I call it the airport test, right? I might take that going forward. Um, But yeah, it's so, so important. Also caveat that I'm raising a family in DC, so that's possible too, but everybody's looking for different things. Right, right. One of the things I asked you, or I always ask my guests before sort of what I'm doing research is, what were some of the things that helped them differentiate themselves early in their career? And one of your answers to me was, I was a pretty big nerd about the Fourth Circuit, and that helped me as a junior lawyer. Tell me a little bit more about that story and sort of, A, what you mean by a nerd about the Fourth Circuit and how maybe that affected your first couple years in private practice. So yeah, so this takes me back to good old Judge King, right? Judge King's been on the Fourth Circuit since 1998, and he is a, not just a student of history generally, but particularly the history of West Virginia and especially the history of the Fourth Circuit. And when you're with him, you're with him, right? Like he would say, hey, I'm going to go get a coffee. And it wasn't, okay, judge, we'll see you when you come back. It was like, okay, we're coming, right? We'd we're all- go, right. We're getting a coffee. We're all going. And it was great because just being in his orbit, like you would absorb so many incredible stories about, and again, like thinking about my personality, right? I've said so many times how much I love history, just getting to be around somebody who knows this. So we'd hear about hmm. stories about when LBJ appointed- Judge Butzner to the Fourth Circuit, right? There's an interesting story behind that. Or hearing stories about what it was like to practice in front of Judge Widener, who's a sort of a very renowned, long-serving judge, late judge in the in the Fourth Circuit. And so along the way, you start to realize how much of the history of the court informs the culture and, and how that informs the way that court just operates day to day. So a thing that's pretty well known about the Fourth Circuit is Their panels are secret until the morning of argument. And that in turn means that like you are at a much higher advantage if when the panel comes out, you can go, okay, I know about this judge. I know about this judge. I know about this judge. So when I was there on the ground floor, when the um, issues and appeals practice started and there's a case at the fourth circuit, I could be there with the lawyer. I could look at the panel and I could say, okay, this judge has a professional background that before they went on the bench, they did this, or they practiced in this area, that kind of thing. And so actually there was one case that our firm was handling on appeal for a fortune 500 company. It was a very contentious litigation. And it was so important to the company that they actually had a meeting at our firm. The CEO came, 
the CFO came, the general counsel, the director of communications. It was this kind of intimidating meeting. And the partner was like, Kevin, you're coming with me. And nice. I was like, nice. I was like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah, you need to come because they're going to have questions about the fourth circuit. They want it, they're going to want to know like, what do you think this judge might ask in the completely unpredictable chance that we might actually draw this judge? Like what kinds of questions do you think they would ask? You know, totally. And again, like you're not guaranteeing things, but they just want to have a sense of somebody who is thought about this mm-hmm. and is comfortable saying, here's something that you could expect based on my experience. Right. And so I think that that helps to inform so much of the guidance that you're trying to give as a lawyer, right? Like you want your clients to understand that you are thinking about their problems right? in a way that's going to try to help them solve the problem. That sounds a little too obvious, but like that was just, that's how it all goes, right? Right. It may sound obvious, but it's, it is important and it's what differentiates. The reality is just like we were talking about, there are lots of potential associates who would fit perfectly fine at a law firm. From a client's perspective, there are lots of potential lawyers who could probably do a decent job on their case. Yeah. And so it's fine. It's not, that can't be the only metric to how you're going to hire somebody or how you're going to rehire them and continue working with them. It's also something to remember that I'm curious if you have felt the same way. When I was coming off my clerkship, I almost felt like I didn't know how to be a real lawyer because I had done a little bit before I went to clerk. And it was sort of this, I was going back to sort of the fact nitty gritty after having sort of spent, like you talked about, like weeks and weeks thinking about some like esoteric issue of New York State con law and how it interacted with the federal constitution. And that your story kind of flips it on its head and says, actually, the knowledge you gain or the knowledge you can gain as a junior lawyer are those like how the court works, what goes on, who the players are. And you can do that whether you clerk or not, like becoming an expert on like the local rules makes you a value, a valuable ad, even as a first year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like that is a hundred percent true. I mean, if you are an associate, I think about it this way, right? There are lots of prognosticators about the Supreme Court of the United States. In our profession, everybody knows who they are. They know where the splits are. Right. There are a million people who are going to do that, who are going to talk to about, oh, this is what this justice might do. Who's going to do that for your local division of the United States District Court? Right. Who's going to talk about like one judge's approach to discovery issues might be versus another judge's? If you've clerked in that courthouse, you more than someone who didn't are better positioned to be able to say, in my experience, this is how this judge approaches these kinds of issues. And you're just trying to guide clients through a process that to them is uncertain. So I think that's 100 percent where young associates can sort of make themselves experts on something. And you don't have to be a clerk to do that, right? Like, even if you just go read the local rules, like that's right. that's super helpful too. Because at one point I knew the local rules. I've got a case that's in federal court in Richmond now. And I'm like asking the associate, hey, I, I'm doing the, it's like, it's awful. I'm doing the partner thing where I'm like, <laughs> and I'm not even a partner where I'm doing like, I think I remember that there's a rule about this. Can you go look at it? And they go and they come back and it's, you know, like I was like halfway right, you know? Right, right. But again, having somebody who has that at their fingertips is invaluable. Absolutely. Well, look, Kevin, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to hear about your pivot to uh, becoming a prosecutor and eventually working at the Capitol on a pretty big case. So we'll be right back. This episode is also brought to you by Legal Board. Let's be honest. How many times have you needed to type a section symbol or a paragraph symbol, type the word id, or write out words like plaintiff and defendant? Well, the legal board makes that a breeze with 35 lawyer-specific keys and functions that make legal typing so much easier. 
The Legal Board was invented by my friend and podcast guest from episode 38, Brian Potts. As a busy big law partner, Brian created the keyboard he always wanted, and now you can get one too. There are three different models. There's a wired keyboard, a wireless keyboard, and the Legal Pad, which is a small keyboard expander for law students, traveling lawyers, and Mac users. Frankly, these are the computer keyboards I wish I had when I was a practicing litigator. And Legal Board is not only helping support how I lawyer, thanks for that, but they also have offered a discount code for our listeners. So just go to legalkeyboards.com and type in Legal Board 10 at checkout to save 10% on your entire order. Thanks to Legal Board for sponsoring the show. And we're back. As I was saying before the break, I want to sort of pivot to your time as a prosecutor. I actually haven't had that many prosecutors on the podcast, partially because sitting prosecutors tend not to want to talk about being a prosecutor while they're doing it. So talk to me a little bit about the decision to become a prosecutor, the path, and then maybe we can also talk a little bit about sort of the day-to-day life of what you were doing when you got there. Yeah. So at the law firm, I loved the people. I was doing interesting work, but I had this itch for public service that I really wanted to scratch. And so I kind of was always trying to be open-minded and look around for these opportunities. And I also was aware, you know, as whatever I was considered a fourth or fifth year associate, I was getting limited opportunities, not for any fault of the firm, but limited opportunities to be inside a courtroom doing the lawyer thing. The practice of law today, particularly at a firm of that size, that's just the way it is. Yeah, exactly. Right. And great pro bono opportunities. I actually got to argue a case at the Fourth Circuit in a pro bono case that was an incredible experience. And the day after the argument, it was like, okay, when can I do that again? And it was the answer was like, "Eh, we'll see. So, but I was also grounded in Richmond, right? We had made this decision to stay. So there was an opening that came up in the Richmond U.S. Attorney's Office, and I thought, I hadn't really ever thought about myself as being a prosecutor, but it's in what I thought of sort of my home court in the district court in Richmond. It would be an opportunity to do something a little different, get some interesting experience. And so I sort of took the leap and landed that position, and it was incredible. I mean, it was a similar, like I said, I thrive in environments where I can be friends with people. It was extremely friendly environment, very supportive. Supportive in a way that the law firm is a little bit different. In the law firm, you're working a lot of times, at least at our firm, a lot of times in teams. Mm-hmm. At the U.S. Attorney's Office, frequently you're you're doing a case by yourself and you are responsible for advising and guiding federal agents, which is a little intimidating when you're me and I'm like in my 30s and a few years out of law school, have never been a prosecutor. And all of a sudden I've got an FBI agent who's been doing his job for like longer than I've been out of high school. So- right. And I'm trying to tell, oh, I think you should go and subpoena this person. Or I think, you know, <laughs> you want to make sure that you're that you're doing the right thing. But yeah, it was an incredible experience. I did mostly white collar investigations, which is proactive, right? You have a lead that'll come in from usually from a federal agency. And in my case, oftentimes it was with the FBI or the Postal Inspection Service. And if the supervisors in our office think it is a credible case to predicate opening a file, open it and assign it to you. And then it's your job to basically figure out, like, was a crime committed here? Frequently, we would have victims coming in saying that they had been they had lost money in what seemed to be some kind of fraud scheme. So you use the powers of the grand jury to compel people and companies to provide you documents. You can compel people's testimony to testify before the grand jury, to tell the grand jurors what happened, do a lot of informal, or I shouldn't say informal interviews. You're doing interviews that are not transcribed, but you know, you have an agent there who's going to take notes and memorialize it that way, all with the mind towards making a determination about whether someone should be charged with a federal offense. Wow. And I guess, you know, I have two follow-ups to that. The first is, 
that sounds a lot like doing fact development mm-hmm. and pretty far away in some ways from arguing a brief or writing a brief or arguing a case at the Fourth Circuit. Yeah. Was that sort of a different did it make your days feel different? Did it make your life feel different to sort of be a more investigative focused position as opposed to a more sort of black letter law focused position? It was different in the sense that the sort of goal that you're reaching at is capturing factual information, right? So you're right, it was on fact discovery. But I think that my sort of approach from having been more of the sort of legally minded as opposed to fact minded lawyer previously, it gave me a sense of sort of the, like, where are we on the chessboard right now with our investigation, right? Like we have the code book and here are the elements of wire fraud. We have to have a material misrepresentation, interstate wire. And so you kind of are doing zooming back and forth between like, here's the legal landscape and here's where this mm. fact fits into that. So, I mean, yes and no, it was, it's a little bit different, but you find ways to overlay previous experiences onto what you're doing. And hopefully it's making you better at your job. Yeah. And that's so interesting because I think some of the best trial lawyers that I've interviewed and been around think about it that way, right? They know the law and and they're looking for facts to see if there are sort of factual hooks to legal elements or legal concepts or what they're going to eventually have to present to the grand jury or the jury. Right. And so you really need to be constantly going back and forth is what it sounds like between fact law and law and fact. Right. Absolutely. And I guess the other follow-up was, did you feel ready to be a prosecutor? Like you had been a law clerk you had been at this big firm and then you have your own cases. Like, were you ready for that? No, but I'm not sure unless there's some people who come over to federal, to the U.S. attorney's office from a state prosecutor's office. So maybe they feel prepared. I'm not sure that you ever really are totally prepared. What I came to appreciate and feel very humbled by later on, very quickly, you sort of get more and more responsibility. Like I was only there for two years, but by the end I was being brought in to interview people to come into the office, right? Like I was some like I was a reliable person to say like, yeah, I think this person should work here or not. But what you come to realize when they're making the hiring decisions, you, we talked about like objective qualification, personality fit. There is this additional thing that is very express in the conversations about bringing people into the, into the office, which is, do we trust this person's judgment? Hmm. Do we think that they are going to stand up in court and do right by the United States when they are making decisions that are very consequential? right? You are making huge impacts on people's lives when you are making charging decisions. And it's not just the person who made a mistake and did something illegal. It's their family. It's their kids. It's their neighborhood. It's the people who go to church with them. It's obviously, it's their victims. It's the victims' families. So judgment is a huge piece of that. So I think once I realized that the reason that I was brought in was because they were sort of validating to say, we know you don't know how to cross-examine a witness yet, right? Or you don't know how to introduce FBI agents' testimony for particular purposes. Like, we can teach you that. Hmm. We can teach you that. Yes. But there's something sort of inherent that it's difficult to teach people judgment. So once I realized that, I won't say it made me feel like totally comfortable, but it gave me a sense of, okay, these are people who trust me and I can go and ask them any question I have about how to do something and nobody will close their door on me. And how do you judge judgment? Like, what what do you look for? Like, is it experience? Is is that what the proxy for judgment is? Is it just uh, humility? Like, what are the things you're looking for when you're trying to assess someone's judgment? Because that's hard. You're right. It is hard. I mean, part of it is almost talked about the blind date analogy, right? Like, there's maybe the equivalent of like whatever the butterflies are when you meet the right person. There's a sense of that. 
But I also have to, you know, you have to recognize that like that can be a dicey, right? Like to be conscious of whatever your internal bias is about about how people express their judgment. Hundred percent. You know, one way you can do it is by asking people about difficult ethical situations they've been in, mm-hmm. and when you do that, you get a sense of what they think a difficult ethical situation is, right? And then also to hear them talk through how they work their way through the problem. That's one way to do it. But I don't know that there's a good answer to that. But I suppose sometimes offices don't make the right decisions. Just really lucky in Richmond that it seemed like everybody knocked it out of the park most of the time. Yeah. And one thing that you said that I that really stuck with me is this idea of looking at somebody's process. Like you can judge someone's judgment if you give them opportunities to talk through how they process things. And mm-hmm. maybe that's part of it too. Makes me think about the athlete example that sometimes these teams pick people who did not have very good college uh, sports stats and they pick them because they're like, I can train this person how to be a great fill in the blank point guard, running back, whatever. What I can't train is that the, the wingspan that they have, like right. they have that wingspan and will train you. And I think that's true for lawyers to an extent too, not with wingspan, obviously, but this idea that you were saying of sort of like the judgment is innate or built on experience and we can train you how to do the actual task. That's actually kind of our job. Right. And so the biggest thing I will say to anybody listening is don't self-select out of something because you haven't yet had that experience. People will train you. That's the way this profession works, but get experiences that help build your judgment and your process and you'll be better off. Yes. All right. So it took us a while to get there, but I have to ask about your most recent government service, which is work on the January 6th uh, select committee. So first, how did it happen? And then I'd love to hear a little bit about what that was like. Sure. Well, so the way that it came together, I... Before I was in AUSA, when I was at Hunton, recall I was doing commercial litigation, some appellate work. There was this partner at Hunton who did white collar work named Tim Hafey. And Tim needed an associate for a couple of pro bono tasks. They weren't really in my wheelhouse, but I knew that Tim was a good guy. He was a former US attorney for the Western District of Virginia. I mentioned my wife had been an associate at the firm at one point. She had actually done a project with him and liked him. And so I you know, said, yes, I would do that. And it was a good working relationship. It was sort of like a la carte things here and there with Tim. It wasn't that big a deal. We weren't working together all the time. August 12th, 2017 in Charlottesville, Unite the Right. This awful riot breaks out, uh, altercations between these right-wing white nationalist groups and counter-protesters who had gathered knowing that they would be there to try to stand against what they were protesting for very violent. A woman was killed when she was hit by a car driven by one of these white nationalists into a crowd of people. In the immediate aftermath of that, Tim, who actually lives in Charlottesville, was hired by the city of Charlottesville to conduct an independent review of what had happened. And he called me and he said, Kevin, I liked working with you before. Mm. You're a good writer. I need your help on this. Can you come do it? And I talked to the partners who I had worked for and they're like, absolutely go do this. This sounds like it'd be really interesting and important. So I basically, for 90 days straight, me and two other associates worked for Tim on this independent review, end up writing like a 200 plus page report that's more or less a fairly definitive and granular accounting of everything that happened in Charlottesville over that summer. And with policy recommendations for the city, here's how you can prevent this kind of thing from happening again. That's in 2017. I go off, become an AUSA. I'm in the middle of doing that. Tim had left the firm. He goes to be the head lawyer at University of Virginia. And then I find out through the news, Tim Hafey's been hired as the chief investigative counsel for the January 6th Select Committee. And I was like, huh, that's really cool. And no sooner than I started to wonder if maybe he would call me that my phone rings and Tim calls hmm. and he says, hey, wow, we're going to do this thing. It's going to be like Charlottesville. 
I'd really like for you to come. And I thought about it. I will say I thought about it for long enough for me to talk to Lindsay about it, but it ultimately required me to have to quit the U.S. Attorney's Office because I wasn't going to be able to work both for the executive branch and the legislative branch at the same time. Right. And so within two weeks of getting that call, I was reporting for duty on the Hill. Wow. Again, going back to what we talked about it, I think like minute five of the podcast of like one experience just leading to others. And also, right, the fact that you were seen as a good writer, that was the skill they needed in the moment. You had picked up the experience. It's sort of mind blowing if you think about it. What was the experience like working for the select committee? Like, was it similar to being in AUSA and working up a case? Or are we talking like a totally different um, experience? It was both. Setting aside what the subject matter was and who some of the people we were getting information from, just in terms of the mechanics of it, was very similar to doing a fact investigation for the U.S. Attorney's Office. And in fact, Tim had hired, I was sort of one of the baby prosecutors who came over, but there were several other people who came over with lots of prosecution experience from different offices across the country. And you know, we're using congressional subpoenas, which are less coercive, shall we say, than a grand jury subpoena. Right. But we're also just making cold calls to people, asking for their help, trying to get documents in. And sort of like once you start to get a little bit of momentum, then that's when you start to get more and more information. So for a long time, it was very similar, right? Of course, you're doing it like in the shadow of the Capitol and we're going on tours of where glass was shattered and police officers were injured. It was under a microscope too. So lots of public attention. The part that was completely different from anything I had done before was when we started to turn towards reporting on our investigative findings, right? It was probably a solid six months of just work, 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 investigate, investigate. And as we started to get through the spring turning towards summer, it was like, okay, we're going to have hearings now. And some of the staff who had been on congressional committees before were like, you guys just wait. And those of us who had 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 trials were like, okay, yeah, sure. We've been like, we know what it's like. It's not, we know what it's like to work hard. But Jonah, I will tell you, it wasn't like just preparing for trial. We were preparing for a trial that was only like closing arguments for two hours straight, prime time on national TV that's going to be tweeted in real time. And you had to get everything exactly right. And so the hours we pulled for the summer were just mind boggling, but it was also incredibly invigorating, right? I mean, you're doing this, you know, we're all there for our own personal reasons, but for me, it was really important to be a part of this historic investigation into this absolutely insane event that happened. I mean, I kept thinking to myself, I used to draw pictures of the Capitol building on my whiteboard when I was a government teacher, trying to Hmm. teach my students about like the bicameral legislature. And now I'm in, now I'm a lawyer investigating this. And there, I should say, there were a couple dozen amazing investigators on the select committee who taught me so much about the fact investigation, sort of grace under pressure, getting through those things, really great support mechanism for everybody. But yeah, I mean, all of a sudden we're making TV shows in the middle of the summer and mm-hmm. people are texting me. They see me walking by the TV on CNN and you're just kind of, it was very surreal. But it was exciting, and I'm really glad I did it. Can answer a more specific question as opposed to no, what, what was I mean, it like? No, no, no. I mean, I guess what's so amazing to that is I was thinking back to your being a history teacher too, and like so much of that was telling a story that was so challenging, but like your job was to tell it under that microscope. Right. And in terms of the presentation, like how did you get from all this information? Like I'm always interested sort of as like a practical matter, how you go from facts 
to presenting those facts. And that could be a trial or like on steroids at the select committee. Like, how do you think about how am I going to turn all these facts into something that someone who doesn't know all these facts can digest them? Yeah. Well, actually, I think back to trial I had as a prosecutor that was a, a fairly simple mail fraud trial as far as mail fraud goes. And the prosecutor I worked on that with it was the first person I've had worked with who had given me an order of proof is what he called it, right? A document that was, here is basically the script, so to speak, of what I think is going to go. And he gave it to me and he said, I want you to think about like, is this going to make sense if we tell the story to the jury in this order, right? Hmm. Which isn't something that I had thought about, right? Like you're just kind of thinking about maybe it's the appellate perspective in me. Like we're not thinking about how the jury is reading the, how they're experiencing it from the beginning to the end. We're just looking, okay, this fact came out you know, on the second day of trial and there was no objection. So that's good. And so it's very similar with the select committee. We're saying the story of the attack on the Capitol is really a story to provide the most important appropriate context that starts on election night on November 3rd. Mm. How do we tell that story in digestible bites that's going to make sense? And do we have the appropriate like storytellers for that piece of information? What do we have that we can piece together from our recorded testimony in a form of kind of a documentary style oral history versus what we might need to have a live witness to come and testify to, or what's going to be most impactful if we do this. And that's actually where a lot of, you know, the committee, there was news that was made when they were hired a a former television, a news television producer to help produce the hearings. But like, it makes complete sense in retrospect, because he wasn't trying to make it like we didn't blow it out of proportion. I mean, in my view, we didn't make it bigger than it actually was, right? He was there to help tell us and along with the other people who were video editors and had an eye for this, like your story makes sense if you tell it in this way, right? So, hmm. and then frankly, at the end of the whole process, the committee released all the transcripts and put out a ton of evidence. So if anybody wants to go and try to debunk the way in which the story was told, they're welcome to try to go do that. Yeah, it was it was really fascinating. Do you feel like you're going to use what you learned about being a storyteller in your future career as a lawyer? Because I will tell you from the outside, as someone who studies legal communication, to see law and facts presented in that format was just felt so almost like revolutionary and 21st century and just different than people like you and me who have been around courtrooms and we don't see it like that that often. Like any takeaways on the future of legal storytelling from that experience? I mean, I think that we will, you will absolutely see attempts, at least on the Hill, right? In congressional- Sure investigations to to tell that. Because let's be honest, like a huge difference between a congressional investigation and a criminal investigation or any kind of lawsuit is you're trying to gather information that could help inform sort of legislative change, but you're also trying to inform the public. Mm-hmm. You have a mind to say, we want the American people to understand in a way that we can help them wrap their arms around this story. On the congressional front, I think that's where the clearest sort of change is to come in terms of how that happens. But in terms of my own personal experience, I think I have learned the thing I take away the most are the lessons I learned from being around the other lawyers who were on the Mm. committee, right? And seeing what their styles were in terms of questioning witnesses and how you could, with somebody who you knew it was appropriate to be friendlier with them in the deposition than you might otherwise be with them or who needed to have sort of like a more stern set of questions to get information out. So I think I've learned more about how to pull out the information hmm. that goes into the story as opposed to how to tell the story. Fantastic. Well, look, I feel like we could go on forever, Kevin. This is so fun. I'm already going to 
preemptively say, let's find another time to do this in the future, because I think you've been a fantastic guest and has such an interesting career. You know, we're getting to the end of our time, and I always like to ask to leave listeners with a piece of advice for somebody who's sort of new to our profession or something you wish you knew sooner, something to leave us with. We've hit on a lot of the points already, but I think I would really emphasize that it's so important to kind of find your people, right? Wherever those people may be, if it's in law school, it's with, you know, maybe it's with the moot court team or it's with a a special interest, you know, society of some kind, finding your people where you can, where you feel sort of like you get supercharged by Hmm. being in that environment. And when you apply that to the practice of law, I think that that is invaluable because you end up being excited about the work you're doing. You can, I'll put it this way. I have worked on projects that were really fascinating, cool, like constitutional issues, like that on paper should have been like, oh, this is going to be amazing. But I've worked with people who are not particularly fun to work with on it. Sure. I've also done the opposite where I've worked on projects that have been really challenging that I haven't particularly enjoyed as a matter of substance, but working on it with people who I love. And 10 times out of 10, I'll take the latter, right? Because those are my people and we can get through that together. And we jointly committed to doing a good job on that. So wherever you can find your community, keep that in the front of your mind as you're looking for your steps ahead of you in your career path. Fantastic. Well, look, thanks for telling the first part of your story, Kevin. And as I said, we look forward to hearing about this next chapter uh, as you are back in private practice and bringing all of these experiences uh, to the law. So thanks for your candor. Thanks for the stories. And uh, if you're ever back up here in DC or I'm down in Richmond, uh, let's make sure to hang out in person. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Jonah. All right. Be well, Kevin. Again, I'm Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.